0: continue our coverage of the latest Fed Minutes. They were just out about 18 minutes ago. Joining us right now is Ndaye Kapfidzi, Chief Economist at Lending Tree, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Nice to see you again.
2: Good to see you guys.
0: So the Fed Minutes, you know, I was asking, you know, we were asking just a I before we got going, you know, anything that really jumps out. I mean, the markets didn't really react. So pretty much as expected here.
2: Uh, yeah, there were no big surprises. Um, I think the thing with the economy right now, it's kind of like a one of those choose your own adventure stories from when you were a kid. Um <laughs> there are things that are that are looking good and other things are looking weaker. Uh so you know, I think the Fed is saying things are finally balanced. We're going to keep a close eye on things and act as appropriate if things, you know, dip in the wrong direction.
0: But what's different because they say that all the time. We're going to constantly watch the data. We're going to react a- a- accordingly. So what's is there anything different from that or no?
2: Um, I think they're pretty clearly signaling, right, that right now they don't have a bias to act. Right now they have a bias to not act, whereas I think before Mm. it was clear that there was a bias to act and that would translate into market expectations, which they would then fulfill, right? So right now they're trying to tell the market don't have expectations of any action at the next meeting and probably at the one after that, so hopefully those percentages that that people like to watch are not going to move into expecting a cut.
1: So when you think about where we are right now in November 2019 versus where we were a year ago and our expectations of what was going to happen this year, how do you think about that from a a broad economic lens of what didn't happen that maybe we expected and maybe more importantly, what didn't happen that the Fed expected to happen?
2: Um, I I think probably the Fed, right, they've mentioned the trade war several times. Um, And that was always the big risk for the economy going to this year. And you see it in things like CapEx, uh, et cetera. So I think what they were trying to do is to make sure that that didn't bleed through to other parts of the economy, namely the labor market, which has slowed but really hasn't contracted to the extent that the manufacturing sector or CapEx has, and also into consumer spending. Um, I think it's also helped by the fact that, you know, manufacturing is a smaller part of the economy than it used to be in past decades and doesn't really lead the economy the way that it used to. Uh, so I think if you, though if you look at the Fed's own projections uh, from this time last year and previously, we pretty much you know, hit the mark in terms of what was being expected in the economy.
0: I'm curious about some of the discussions you guys are having with your team, you and, you know, um, over at LendingTree, you know, you're an online lending lending marketplace. Um, we watch the lending environment so closely, whether it's at the business level, whether it's the individual level, because it does give us an indication of what's going on in, in the economy. And I feel like that gives us some visibility. What are the kind of conversations you're having? What are some of the metrics that you guys are seeing internally?
2: Um, yeah, so we've seen quite a lot of pickup in mortgage activity, right, both in terms of home sales and in terms of refinancing and i think the interesting thing with the housing market is one of the most realist uh, sorry interest rate sensitive segments right and it reacts immediately right and that is the kind of thing that the fed is watching and saying that this translates into the rest of the economy of course with a bigger lag in other sectors of the economy so the bet the fed is making is that as you saw in the housing market this year a one point or more than a one point decline in mortgage rates since last November has translated into an increase in activity. They're betting that the cuts that they're making on the short end are going to translate into increases in activity in other sectors of the economy.
0: And you guys are seeing that because you're seeing mortgage activity continue to be pretty robust. How would you describe it? What's the adjective you would use?
2: Um, I'd say we're in a bit of a refi boom uh, mm. over the past couple of months. Uh, and we're seeing the housing market uh you know, probably stabilize. Uh, It had been in a bit of a downward trend. Uh, So we're seeing it stabilize. In the third quarter, you saw residential investment actually add to GDP for the first time in a few quarters. Uh, So those are the sort of things that we're seeing in terms of the pickup in activity directly as a result of the lower mortgage rates. Because I
0: think this is important when we've got like Home Depot earnings, right, which were somewhat disappointing. I think Lowe's was better today, but we were, you know, and then other folks have talked about the housing market in general, liking the home builders from an investment perspective. And
1: so what do you look out at that could be a sign that we should get a little more worried or a little bit more cautious? I mean, we've had mixed Mm -hmm. reviews or mixed picture. It feels like from the retailers, uh, for instance, even broadening out uh, beyond. And the the home sector, what do you see that, that's any cause for concern today?
2: Um, I think the big thing is still business confidence. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, you know, with kind of the, the trade war continuing, I really think the, the window for a trade deal to, I think, have an impact in 2020 is over. Uh, and I say this because even if we get a deal today, uh, because we then enter immediately into election season, a lot of businesses are not going to be making big investments, uh, you know, because they would expect some policy changes with the election of either a new president or a new Congress or with the continuation of the current administration which may choose to you know act differently in terms of their trade plans, et cetera. Uh, so I think you know the window's done. Twenty nineteen is basically over from in terms of like making plans. Uh, and in twenty twenty, even if we do get a, a trade deal, I don't see any upside from it. So business confidence is gonna be getting whacked. Every day next year, from election uncertainty, and I think spending is going to be on hold from businesses. If that translates into weaker labor markets, which I think last week we already saw a slight spike uh, in right. initial claims for unemployment, right. weaker labor markets, if that hits consumer confidence and that hits consumer spending. That's the downside risk. That's how I. That's how I connect the dots.
0: So recession. If you had to figure out the odds, just got about 20 seconds here. 50/50. 80/20. In 2020. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm. am curious. Yeah.
2: If- I, I mean, I, I think it's a great question. Uh, I'm. I'm not a big fan of recession probabilities. The way I talk about recessions is how vulnerable are you to shocks? I would say in 2020, we're going to be more vulnerable to shocks than we are this year. All right.
1: That's a fair answer.
0: Yeah. I like it. Great answer. All
1: right. Tindai Kapizi is chief economist for LendingTree here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio, breaking down those Fed Minutes. You, 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 you
2: All
1: right. Well, the protests in Hong Kong, they've rippled through the markets. They've rippled through the world of professional basketball. They've rippled through corporate boardrooms. Right. So, what does it mean when the Senate passes a bill in support of the protests? It moves to the House. How is that going to affect a very complicated relationship, to say the least, between Washington and Beijing? Let's put that and more to Clayton Allen, his vice president of special situations, excuse me, at Height Capital Markets. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Hi, Clayton. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. All right, so put this in context for us because. You know, there's not a lot that gets passed, candidly, uh, down in the Capitol these days, but maybe they're moving on this. What are the implications at a time where, to say the least, uh, things are uh, heightened between the U.S. and China?
3: Heightened is a, a very diplomatic way to put it. <laughs> um, you're absolutely right. A lot of things do not move right now. We're, we're seeing a lot of stagnation in congressional business. This is an extraordinary example of both chambers moving something very, very quickly and unanimously in both cases. Uh, It's a very strong signal from Congress that they are interested in at least commenting or trying to take some action on the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, That's interesting in, 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 in terms of timing because it comes as President Trump is in the middle of trying to get this sort of phase one deal, if you want to call it that, across the finish line. And China has made it very clear that they don't like this Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. So the fact that the Senate passed unanimously and the House is about to uh, take the last congressional action to enroll it and send it to the president's desk this afternoon certainly adds a a complicating factor to Trump's efforts to try and get things done.
0: Makes me wonder um, if Senate Republicans are talking with the White House and vice versa.
3: You know, I I think that they certainly are. Mitch McConnell has demonstrated a very close relationship with the White House. Not always a necessarily friendly one, but Mm. certainly a close relationship in terms of the White House knowing what Senate Republicans are going to do. I, I would very much doubt that Senator McConnell, or Leader McConnell, I should say, allowed this bill to go up for a hotline request and then be put to UC without the White House at least tacitly approving of that happening.
0: So then, Clayton, what's going on? Because, right, you you have the U.S.-China negotiations, investors, and financial markets certainly reading it as, okay, we're making progress. We understand it's baby steps, but phase one, maybe, you know, it's going to be done. Uh, And then you have this happen. How do you reconcile that?
3: So I think the place to start is actually with what investors expect. And I will say that i think people have built up in their minds what a phase one deal actually will consist of if we go back to earlier in the fall when we were just sort of starting these negotiations the thinking in in dc and everywhere else or most other places was we're going to get a very minimal very bare bones trade china's going to buy more ag products the u s is going to delay the october tariff hike and then the new tariffs in december and you're going to see some ancillary concessions around huawei and other things like poultry imports well that's still very much i think our base case but investors and i think a lot of people in the media have taken that initial bare bones agreement and said oh it's going to include all these other things oh it's going to be huge it's going to be massive no it's probably not and when you see people have set their expectations that high news saying oh well a deal might not be struck until 2020 starts to make sense If that's the only deal that people are willing to accept or that will meet their expectations of what a deal is, then at this point, there's not really a better outcome for the White House than to say, well, we're still negotiating, we're going to delay the December tariffs to let us keep talking. Hmm. And functionally, you get the same result that you've always expected. Trump, though, has to maintain this narrative that he is a tough actor. He is the only guy willing to go out there and put the fight to China. Allowing this bill to move forward is maybe a really good way to do that.
1: All right. Well, we are going to leave it there, except to have one more question for you, Clayton, which is how are you feeling about your LSU Tigers right now? They have been really fun to watch.
3: You know, they have been. I really wish that we weren't number one because it puts a target right on your back.
1: It really does. But Joe Burrow, man, he has been out of his mind, out of his mind. If only we could understand anything that Coach O says. I mean, that would make it a little bit easier, but uh, they have been fun to watch. I I have a lot of family uh, down in Baton Rouge, so it's been a, a really fun team to watch. Go tigers?
3: And I will say I understand uh, Coach O all the way through. So,
1: <laughs> well, you've worked for Mary Landra. You, you're a you're a good uh, LSU boy. So, if I need any uh, d- any help translating, I, I know where to call. Clayton Allen is Vice President of Special Situations at Height Capital Markets. He joins us on the phone from Washington D.C. Carol Master sitting next to me, just rolling her eyes.
0: I'm just you know I'm I'm just working. Yeah, just <laughs> it like, always comes cut. down. To, it always comes down to sports.
1: Well, I mean. SEC football. All right. I all mean, right. here in November. I mean, right. this is really—it's really starting to count. Uh, although LSU's got Arkansas doesn't this weekend. It, Jason, so.
0: doesn't it always count? It does. Um, okay. It does. Let's That's just true. be real here. Fair point. This story caught our attention today. It's about how the dream of a talking car giving way to gadgets. Um, as U.S. automakers, they stand to lose some airwaves rights as the U.S. FCC proposed reassigning airwaves, long promise to automakers, and instead allowing other wireless uses on the frequencies. I love this story. We want to get into that. We also want to get into what's going on in the automotive and mobility innovation space. Perfect person to do that with. Patrick Little, Senior Vice President, General Manager of Qualcomm Global Automotive. Based in San Diego, Jason and I were just there. today though he joins us in our Bloomberg interactive broker studio in New York welcome nice to see you thanks for having me there's so much going on in this space but I do want to ask you about these airwaves because in reading through this story on the Bloomberg it talks about by the FCC doing this that maybe we're gonna be you know kind of left behind in terms of the auto industry not having access to these uh, airwaves we also do wonder about that 5g implication so how do you see it
4: no it's a great question so the the the, um, and what you're talking about is that there's a 5.9 gigahertz spectrum Correct. that is that was set aside for Uh, for public safety and so there is a portion of the spectrum that we really need for cellular v2x technology and to just make it really simple it's cars talking to other cars which will drive safety to a completely different level of today
0: it's what you need for really good self-driving cars right for it to work it really is and so
4: uh, you know 1.2 million lives are lost on the global roads each year this is going to take a big bite out of it if we can release an ability a protocol for cars to talk to other cars and so cellular v2x technology is that technology but you need spectrum from the FCC to make it happen.
0: So now you don't have it. Uh,
4: there is a piece of spectrum that's going, will be released for cellular V2X. And there's de- there's debate on how much spectrum is a, is, a, is a proper amount to set aside for cellular V2X technology. So there will be spectrum set aside for cellular V2X, which is incredibly important. There is also unlicensed spectrum for other Wi-Fi applications that has also been set aside. So I think the the debate continues. There will be a set aside for cellular V2X which I think is is uh, I think very uh, I think a good foresight from the FCC to set. Some so there'll spectrum. be enough. There we, we hope that there okay. will be yeah. enough. It, it won't be let all. It won't be released all at one time. But we hope initially there'll be enough to get the ball rolling and to get the cellular V two X technology on the roads again incredibly if you ask me of all the technologies Qualcomm works on what is the most important and I would say cellular v2x because it's going to save what so does it many stand for, yeah V2X. so tell us like
1: break yeah. it down for us like what, what are we really talking about here and for the person you know driving in their car right now listening to this hopefully uh, what can they anticipate being able to do that they can't do now?
4: Yeah, really great question. So V2X technology is is an ability for the car to talk to the things around it, talk to other cars, talk to the infrastructure. Right now your car is just isolated going down the road. If, you, if a car next to you knew that you were going to turn or knew that you were going to brake or go through a red light, you'd be able to really be able to have cars... Proactively understand what their cars mm-hmm. are going to do. So cellular V2X at the highest level is, cars can talk to the cars, to the infrastructure, to the network, and understand their surroundings so much better. Good example here in New York, you, you're driving through a green light, and another car is driving through a red light. But you don't see it because there's buildings in the way. Cellular V2X technology is going to alert you to that car that's running through the red light with no stopping distance and let you know you're going to have to brake. No delay? No, no de- Very little latency. That's actually the key, is very lit, little latency because it's in cellular standard. Very little latency to al- allowing your car to understand better than any other line of sight radar hmm. technology or LIDAR technology. Those would not be able to see a car coming around the corner. And so the delay is actually a very critical question. There's right. very little delay for your car to get that information and to make the adjustments. Is it the same delay as a human
0: reacting? Is it's, it on par?
4: It is faster than a human really? reacting. Yes, yes, because it's it's wireless technology, right. so it's going to be very quick. Now, in the future, as we talk about autonomy, the car will be making the decision based on that information. Right now, the first uh, generations of cellular V2X, it's likely that the humans will get an alert, and then you'll make a, dis- a braking decision. Okay.
1: All right. So let's talk about self-driving because it's a complicated topic, more than we can cover in three and a half minutes that we have left. But where are we? What Give us a gut check on what we can expect, say, in the next 12 to 24 months.
4: So really a great question because there's so much marketing out there about, about autonomous driving or even advanced uh, driver's assistant. So, it, you know, everyone asks, is this next year? Is the next year? When, yeah. when is autonomous driving coming? And so the first thing to understand is that there is a huge continuum between uh, advanced driver assistance systems, which is called ADAS, and full autonomous driving. Full autonomous driving is you're in your passenger vehicle anywhere in any environment at any time, and the car is driving. Itself, whether there's lane markers, no lane markers, uh, road, uh, uh, you know, road signs, um, so so autonomy will, will move forward. Prog- There's two ways it'll move forward. First one is progressively. You'll move from last year where you got these warnings on your dash to next year where you'll have automatic emergency braking and you'll get comfortable with that. Then the next year or two years later, you'll get lane keeping hmm. where your car it's will It's already understand- happening though. It's already I mean, happening. my car
0: already does it and I can basically take my hands off the wheel and it'll just guide the car, especially on a highway, and then it'll say, your hands are off the wheel, put them back on. I mean, we're there.
4: Sure, sure. So, a- and we're getting there progressively. But if five years ago I asked you, are you comfortable with the car steering or braking itself? I don't think you would have been so keen on that idea five years ago. So what's happening is we're being incrementally acclimated to full autonomy. The other way that it's going to be working is um, it, there will be fully autonomous situations or near full autonomy situations in what I call closed loop environments. And that is a, co- a shuttle on a college campus or... Even or highways in, to some extent, right? For even, for certain legs of it or certain lanes. Could, that's right. There's no reason why we couldn't do it, right? That's right. So autonomy, the, ch- the real challenge is simple. It's it's such a complex variable environment and, and kind of overlap that with a life-critical mission. That's what's giving everybody pause. Yeah. That's why everybody said next year for sure oh maybe it's the next year after that
0: i want what go ahead i know we could talk an hour on this jason i love this 5g are we going to be behind though and i do wonder about china or elsewhere setting the standards for 5g Great question. So so
4: from a technology standpoint, we won't be behind. So Qualcomm in particular, my company is driving very hard to be the be at the, the forefront of 5G technology. From a deployment standpoint, China is being very aggressive. By next year, they'll have a million base stations, a million 5G base stations. So from a IP and technology development, I think Qualcomm is leading the world in 5G. But as you talk about deployment out in the number of handsets, the number of base stations, right? China's being quite aggressive.
1: And so 30 seconds left, what do you as Qualcomm need to do to ensure that you sort of stay in the mix there with 5G? Uh,
4: with 5G. So I think that we're doing, uh, honestly, I think the challenge for us is to go, f- everybody is to go faster. Yeah. The appetite, there's no de- no debate about 5G taking off. It's just how fast can we go? And frankly, we, we pulled in our 5G plan by a full calendar year, which was a Herculean uh, wow. g- a herculean lift for the company. But I, I think it's an ecosystem thing. You have to work with the partners. You have have to work with the network operators, you have to work with the handset guys. It's not something one company can do, but we're driving the technology very hard. We have great partners that we're working with to really bring an ecosystem solution.
1: All right, Uh, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Patrick Little, Senior Vice President, General Manager for Qualcomm Global Automotive, based out in San Diego, here with us in New York City all right well let's talk a little bit about the retail sector now we've been alluding to it and it certainly has been on the minds of lots of different investors today and yesterday we're in the midst of just a flurry of retail earnings so let's break it down Poonam goyle is here with us senior u.s retail analyst for bloomberg intelligence she's on the phone from bi headquarters in princeton new jersey and joe feldman senior managing director and retail analyst for the telsey advisory group on the phone in new york city Poonam, i want to start with you like what's happening like give us the the quick synthesis because i feel like my my head is getting a little whiplash here uh looking at all these numbers coming out and the investor reaction
5: yeah, you know, I think it's a mixed batch, once again, just like it has been all year. You're seeing the retailers that have been doing well, the mass merchants, Target, Walmart, obviously coming out with really good numbers, raising guidance. And then you have the department stores where things have been pretty ugly, especially with Kohl's yesterday. Even though they reported a slight gain, they slashed their outlook despite everything new that they've introduced in stores this fall. So really, um, you know, that was really alarming on that front.
0: I do wonder, Joe, you know, we talk still about the retail apocalypse, and maybe that's not right anymore. It's just a case of we're overstored, we're over mauled, we've got to pull some of that overcapacity out of the system. And those retailers who figure out, you know, what consumers want, they're going to get it right, whether it's TJ Maxx, whether it's Target, you know, versus some others who just can't figure it out. What's your take here?
6: Yeah, we have a similar view that uh, there's a definite need for physical and digital uh, to combine and that you get greater leverage when you do the two together and do it well, as you can see from Target or Walmart or even Home Depot and Lowe's. And you know, So the, the retailers that have been successful at blending the two and leveraging their store bases have done a very good job. And there are second-tier players, there's second-tier real estate, and I think that's where you do see some pressure. And, um, you know, so it's something you have to watch and see there may be some shakeout. But the, the best locations and the best uh, retailers seem to be performing OK from what we see.
1: And so, Punam, standouts here. I mean, like, who, who do you point to and say everything just seems to be firing firing on all cylinders and people should do whatever they can to emulate them?
5: I would have to go back to the Walmart and Target's of the world. I mean, everything Mm -hmm. is working for them, whether it's the stores, whether it's online. It's just all coming together perfectly, discretionary, non-discretionary. Target showed a 10% percent same store sale increase in apparel, which is pretty good. I mean, you know, everything that we're hearing from the department stores, women's apparel is still struggling. So I'd say they're enviable right now.
1: And so, Joe, I want to sort of dig down on something that Poonam said. That breakdown between uh, discretionary, non discretionary. So much of this it feels like comes down to mix in in a lot of ways uh, when we look across these these different names, especially as you get past the specialty uh, retailers like a who we'll hear from I think in in a couple weeks. Uh, how much do you agree with that, and, and in your estimation, uh, does Poonam have it right in terms of who's doing it the best?
6: Yeah, I would agree with Poonam, uh, yeah, that Walmart, Target, definitely at the top of the list, uh, executing so well, Costco, yeah. uh, doing a really good job, and what's really interesting about this group of retailers, and even the off prices, I think you guys mentioned TJX a few mm-hmm. minutes ago, yeah. its it, value is the one common theme and the ability to to match the right price with a high-quality product or the right quality product. And that value is definitely translating to where the customer is shopping and spending. And it's where the customer feels there's less value, you're just not seeing it. And I, I think that that's where there's this sort of the haves and have-nots of retail these days. And um, so, so we would agree that there's just broader strength. You know, y- you can't forget Amazon, too. I mean,
5: they're
6: doing a good job, and, and people perceive it as value, and it's the convenience of it.
0: You know, and it's funny, we've always talked about, you know, the demise of brick and mortar, and yet we still see a lot of brick and mortar out there. Uh, Poonam, does it continue to be that way, or do we increasingly continue to see the e-commerce side of things growing and taking more share, or will brick and mortar always have a place kind of in our hearts? Yeah, I, I think it's both. So I think brick
5: and mortars will continue to exist. Joe kind of alluded to this earlier. There is a room for stores. People still like going to stores. But that said, digital is growing double digits every year, and that outlook isn't set to change. Change anytime soon. Right now, you know, across the apparel space, it's probably 25 to 30% of sales. We see online for apparel retailers growing to as much as 50% of sales. Mm. So still a lot of disruption there on the e-commerce front, but there is a place for the bricks. Um, People do like going to stores and TJX, you know, continues to grow them.
1: Right. And so as we get into the next few weeks, it's a very busy time for you guys, for sure, trying to understand all the ebbing and flowing of the holiday season. How optimistic, pessimistic, cautious, enthusiastic are you, Joe Feldman, as you look at the upcoming holiday season?
6: You know, we're, we're optimistic about it um, because of the fact that, you know, the, 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 the ability to drive sales both online and in-store. We think that the consumer is situated pretty well right now from an economic standpoint. They have jobs. Wage growth is there. Um, You know, and and so all the data continues to indicate, especially if you look at some of these better quality retailers, that they are driving sales and they're set up well to have a good holiday season. And I think what's interesting about this whole digital side of things and the growth of e-commerce is the fact that, um a lot of it's coming from store-based retailers. It's Walmart, it's Target. It's not all digitally native brands that are doing this. It's much of the growth, a vast majority right now is coming from physical. All
0: right, we're going to leave it on that note. Hey guys, thank you so much. Poonam Goyal, she is our Senior US Retail Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Joe Feldman also with us, Senior Managing Director, Retail Analyst at Telsey Advisory Group. Joe joining us on the phone uh, right here in New York City.
2: I'm going
0: We are definitely talking trains. Jason and I love, love, love this story. And for any of you who've been on an Amtrak, you're going to love it too because there's so much more than just the Northeast Corridor. Uh, it's a feature story in the upcoming issue of the magazine. It'll be on newsstands tomorrow online and it's already on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, also find it on our weekend radio and TV broadcast. There's my shameless plug. Okay, let's get to the story because Devin Leonard is here with us in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio. He is Businessweek Projects and Investigations Reporter. It really is a deep dive. Um, Devin into Amtrak and I think most folks know it for like going between you know up to what you know down to Washington up to Boston kind of thing you actually went for a ride but you didn't go to Washington Long ride. and you didn't go to Boston.
7: No I went from New York to New Orleans it was a 30-hour train ride and actually it was a bit longer than that and uh, you meet a lot of interesting people people who are afraid of flying and, and things like that uh, you know uh, you know people are just train, train lovers but it's a trip you could take in two or three hours uh, you, you know, on a, on a plane. So who are these people taking the train? Who's, right. Who wants to do this?
1: And there are so many things about that ride that essentially lead to therein lies the rub. Uh, one of which is it was two plus hours late. That's pretty typical. This has not been a very well-run network uh, for a long time. And there's a new boss, uh, familiar to probably many who have followed the business world. He used to run Delta Airlines, Richard Anderson, uh, and he's making some changes. He's not the most popular guy
7: in town. No, he's not, Jason. But I mean, what he's trying to do is—is is that I guess you have you have part of Amtrak that works really well. That's the Northeast Corridor trains, you know, run frequently, they run on time. Well, Amtrak owns those tracks, and Amtrak almost all the tracks, and Amtrak controls almost all the dispatching. But then you get out of the Northeast Corridor. Uh, and Amtrak's running on freight lines, and, they, and the freights control the dispatching. They're supposed to let uh, give Amtrak trains preference. Oftentimes, they, they, they don't, and that's certainly what I saw going down to New Orleans. You know, After a certain point past Meridian, Mississippi, we were getting pulled over all, all the time. That's not supposed to happen. He's trying to do something about that, and he also wants to reconfigure those long-distance routes, too.
0: And he is improving the business, right?
7: Yeah. No, that that's what's really interesting. I mean, he's really gone in there... And, you know, done, you know, looked at the business. He's doing all this cost cutting. That's some of the stuff that, you know, upsets people. But uh, they're on track next year to to break even. That that would be the first time in Amtrak's, you know, 50-year history.
0: Which is remarkable, right? Yeah.
7: And he's getting a lot of pushback
1: from a whole variety of places. Some from the train enthusiasts that you mentioned. Some from employees. Some from lawmakers. uh, Because this institution, as it were, sort of sits in a complicated right. space because it's sort of part utility, heavily regulated, heavily subsidized, and yet it's got to make money or, or come close to it well, at Well, by some law, that's to break even, so right. yeah, right. And so what's how's he going to break the, the log jam? What's his plan to really get over that finish line of an operating profit?
7: well i think that you know the main thing he's doing now is, is really you know paring back costs yeah. and, and you know and, and also running running the routes better you know ultimately he he wants to uh he he, you know, he, he wants to try to force the Freight railroads to, uh, to to you know to let Amtrak's trains run on time that that's a little more long term Well, that might happen sooner than you think but it, but it, but in the meantime he's closed the call center with uh, 550 employees he's uh, changed the the meal service on some of the long distance trains those are things that 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 that, that really ups, upset people but he's just taking a really hard hard look at cost. he's not afraid he's not afraid to uh, tick some people off in fact I think he kind of likes likes doing that but that's that's a that a, in the past. Amtrak CEOs have been you know people from kind of go along and get along folks from the public transportation sphere and that's just That's not his thing. And he he certainly showed that you know at Delta
0: and Amtrak as you know, you've write in your story and just you know, it's getting two billion dollars right from the US government in terms of you uh, subsidies. So it's right. it quite an assist here. I do wonder, Devin, I find it kind of romantic the idea of like being able to get on a train and go somewhere. Sure. I know in Europe they do it, they don't sure. think twice about it. Sure. But I do wonder will there ultimately be demand? Could there be something akin to what we see in Europe back here in the United States when it used to be kind of a cool thing to do, to get on a plane and travel across the country?
7: Sure. Well, I mean, what he's trying to do, what he'd like to do is instead of having these sort of long distance, there's 15 long distance routes and they're set up really to sort of operate from, from end to end. So say for, for you know, the Crescent, which is the train I took to Neurons, you know, you leave, you know, in the afternoon every day, you know, 2.15, you get in at about 7.30, uh, you know, in Neurons the next day, you know, in time for dinner in Neurons, it's, you know, you know, kind of important. Yeah. So, but... In between, there are all these other places that aren't served very well. It goes through Charlotte, for instance, Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a boom town now. You know, when this route was configured 100 years ago, before Amtrak, you know, I guess that was sort of a no place. Uh, it goes through there, at, you know, three o'clock in the morning. So there's all these places that yeah. that aren't served well. What he wants to do is he wants to sort of chop up, you know, as it were, all these long distance routes and run these shorter routes Uh, You know, three or four shorter routes in between these cities and um, the the trains would operate, you know, more frequently and more on time because the routes wouldn't be as long and there wouldn't be as many as, you know, as many opportunities for delay. But he thinks that that's the future. Right. Um, You know, it's a really compelling idea. It's just, you know, politically and for a lot of other reasons, you know, it's tough, although he thinks ultimately... Demographics, population, and, and just you know, congested highways—that that's going to that, yeah. you know that's going to make it you, impossible not to do. Right. right. It's a
1: great read, a must read in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Check it out online and on the Bloomberg Terminal right now. Devin Leonard, P&I reporter, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg Business Week, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio.
3: I'm my car.
2: This is The Drive to the Close. That
6: punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On
7: Bloomberg Radio.
6: And it is
1: time for The Drive to the Close. Michael Sheldon back with us. He is the Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer for RDM Financial Group. He joins us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Michael, great to have you back with Carol and myself. Thank you very much. All right. So let's take a look at where we are in this market. Obviously, today, a little bit of a down day with some trade tensions sort of rearing their ugly heads, but it's been a really nice run of late. We're more or less through earnings season. We've got you know some retail names coming out uh, this week, giving us a sense of what's going on in that sector. How are you feeling uh, about where we are, especially from a corporate perspective and a stock perspective, having heard what you've heard?
8: Well, um, I think overall our sort of thesis is that Uh, We're thinking that an easing of trade tensions, along with additional rate cuts by central banks around the world, to go along with the three rate cuts that we've had from the U.S. central bank, could help set the stage for a more positive backdrop for global growth um, at some point in 2020. So we're looking ahead to next year. In terms of corporate profits, um, I think you were asking about that. We're pretty much done with the third quarter right now, and estimates came in a little bit better than expected, but really growth overall, corporate profit growth the past three three quarters has been pretty flat. I think the big question is looking ahead to 2020, because as an investor, you always want to look ahead. And uh, right now, the estimates for EPS growth are about 9 to 10% EPS growth for 2020, and about 5 out of 11 of the S&P 500 sectors are forecast to post positive growth. So we think those numbers will probably come down a little bit because of the global growth concerns. The big question really does do we get a trade deal? What kind of trade deal does it look like? And and when does that happen? I think that's really the the thousand pound gorilla, if you will, in the room.
0: So is this a time to position yourself for a risk off trade versus a risk on trade? Well, it's really
8: interesting because over the past few months, for much of the year, it's been a somewhat defensive market. Uh, We've had lower interest rates and people have moved into things like utilities and staples. But, But those areas of the market have gotten pretty expensive, if you, look at, if you look at utility stocks, for example, they're trading at a P.E. of roughly 19 times versus a 15-year average of 15 times, so they're a little, a little expensive. Over the past few months, we've seen some rotation, which is interesting and encouraging, I'd say, into financials, semis, industrials, even the foreign markets in value, some of the neglected parts of the market. So I think that's sort of investors looking ahead to a potential phase one deal and, uh, again, following up, Talking about the central rate cuts, central bank rate cuts that have been taking place, and investors looking a little more positive towards 2020. But um, you know, we'll see how that plays out.
1: Michael we always appreciate appreciate I should say your historical perspective I mean what does this look like from a technical perspective what does it feel like to you uh, as you look across sort of past cycles because we're always looking to say okay well this is like that or sort of like that or uh, in some cases we try and make the case that it's completely different which is usually not true but uh, what, what does it remind you of and are there historical sort of antecedents here.
8: Yeah, it's always interesting to look back at prior periods to see what looks similar, what looks different. Um, We think this period could be a little bit sort of like the mid-1990s or mid-1980s. And the reason for that is during those periods, the Fed cut rates just a few times to sort of basically stabilize the economy. And they didn't raise rates for another year or two, and that allowed the economy to get it back on its feet and the global markets to recover. So we're taking – at this point, we believe Chairman Powell – Uh, at his last conference basically said that the Fed is going to move to the sidelines at this point and sort of wait things out. They think the Fed's sort of in a good place right now. And we kind of think this is one of those periods like the 80s or 90s where the Fed has done the right thing. They have to give the markets a little bit of time and that the economy should start to recover again. It's obviously not a slam dunk, but that's our thesis right now. And so given that, we don't think you want to make dramatic changes in your portfolio. You do want to stay diversified. The areas of the market that we like right now are technology. We're excited about things like cloud computing, software as a service. 5G will be rolling out over the next several years. So we own technology ETFs, mutual funds, and stocks. We like financials because of the valuation. And we also like healthcare, which has been kind of neglected, but trades at, a, at an attractive valuation level.
0: You know what's interesting too and I was just looking through some of the notes you sent over and shared and I've seen this too from some other folks about watching what has gained in this market environment while it looks fairly broad based the point is that the Russell 2000 the small caps and the transports the Dow Jones transportation indices have both lagged uh, as of late. What's important about that? What are you watching there?
8: Well, generally speaking, you want the broad market to uh, to rise. You want all the different parts of the market to improve. Um, so the market's been led this year mainly by large-cap stocks. So you have the S&P 500. You have the NASDAQ, which has done well because technology has done well. Mm-hmm. The Dow Jones stocks have done well. But as you mentioned, the transportation stocks, which generally should perform well if the economy is on solid footing, and the Russell 2000 uh, small-cap index, which is a little more speculative, a little more of a risk-on type index, those two have lagged so far. So if you look at the if you look at the internals for the S and P five hundred, recently that that index has been making new all time highs in terms of the advanced decline line mm-hmm. and the percentage of stocks above the two hundred day moving average has been moving up, which is which is which is good. But the NYSE index, the New York Stock Exchange index, which includes small cap stocks, has not done quite as well. So we'd like to see that sort of pick up. And we think then overall, the markets would be on more solid footing going into 2020.
0: Because transports are up about 16 percent, small caps are up about 18 percent, but the large caps, S&P 500, up almost 24 percent, NASDAQ up 28 percent. You're just saying, just quickly, 20 seconds here, that they should be more on par with that?
8: Yeah, we'd like to see those more speculative parts of the market leading the leading the advance. It is healthy to see them participating, and that's also important as well.
1: All right, Michael Sheldon, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer for RDM Financial Group. Join us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.